Welcome to the next episode of Get Schooled by Reeves and Ford, where we discuss all things college admissions. Joel and I have been having conversations about college admissions for years, and now we bring those to you. Our goal is to provide information to you, the listener, about the world of college admissions, the processes involved, and the current issues that are a part of the journey to post-secondary education. I'm Chris Reeves, retired public school counselor and now a dreaded independent counselor. And I'm here with Joel Ford, school counselor at Connor High School. Also with us today is Mike Piergowski, our chief executive producer. Woo. Joel, why don't you explain today's episode? All right, listeners, take the normal format for Get Schooled and throw it out the window, baby. Don't this say ep- no. This episode is going rogue. Uh, I talked to my daughter about this. She says I'm geeking out way too much um, in regards to our special guest for this episode. But frankly, I don't care what she thinks. Uh, This episode is going to be redonkulous. It's going to be ginormous. It's going to be epic. I am excited to introduce to the Get Get Schooled World Studios the new Chief Executive Officer of the National Association for College Admission Counseling, Mr. Angel Perez. Uh, I was lucky enough and honored to serve on the NACAC search committee uh, from June 2019 to April 2020. Uh, And in that time, we found a candidate in Angel who understood the history of NACAC, who appreciated the circumstances we were in at the time, both as an organization and as a world, um, and who had the vision to lead us forward to a new era of college admissions, whatever that ends up looking like. Uh, Personally, I thoroughly enjoyed listening to his ideas and vision for what NACAC and for what the world of college admissions can look like. Uh, Angel, I know that taking over NACAC's a big deal, but I'm happy to welcome you to what I know will be the pinnacle of your career, the Get Schooled podcast. Um, we want to officially welcome you to the Bald Guys Club, and thank you for, for uh, being a part of our little podcast today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And no pressure, right? I mean, it's going to be redonkulous and ginormous. I mean, that no pressure whatsoever. Oh, it's going to be huge. <laughs> That's uh, you, I, 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 Let me tell you, you can only go up from here. Angel. You can only go up from here. Uh, each, each of our questions and, and topics we, we have with you uh, could last an entire episode. I mean, all the things uh, that, that we could talk about with college admissions and, and you know, we're, we're honored to have your, your presence uh, to, to get into those. Um, you know, what we'll need you to do today, though, no pressure, is solve all the issues of equity in college admission, cure COVID-19, eliminate testing, increase Pell Grants, eliminate all student loan debt. Okay. All joking aside, we, were, we, are, we are honored to have you, and, and, and we're looking forward to hearing, hearing what you have to say, and, and even more importantly than that, sharing that, sharing that with others. Joel, why don't you why don't you fire away? All right. So um, let's go back to January 1st, 2020. What would you have said on that day would have been the top issue or two facing college admissions? Uh, we talked about some of this in episode 12, uh, which we covered the impacts for students and parents of the DOJ inquiry and resolution. Uh, but what do you what do you, what, Talk a little bit about what you think the top issue we all thought was going to be and and why did we think they were going to be so big? Yeah, I would say there are probably two that come to mind, even though depending on on where you sit in the country or the world, the issue might be a little different for you. But definitely, I think the Department of Justice investigation, 
the fact that the National Association for College Admission Counseling had to remove certain guidelines from its ethical documents. And the profession was really sort of at, at an intersection of change. So I think most people were a little nervous about what that would mean for students and whether that might mean that colleges and universities were going to start engaging in some unethical practices and that might actually disadvantage students. And then I think we were also sort of at the tail end, even though we hadn't um, had enough with the media around Varsity Blues as well and, and really having conversations about you know, is the college admissions process fair? Um, are there students who are getting in unethically? And I think that that took up so much time, not just for the profession, but also so much time in the media. Um, we had no idea clearly, Joel, what was coming a few months later, um, that that just seems like so long ago, such a distant past. So now, you know, since then, obviously, <clears throat> two main things, and we'll get into bo both of these. Just the, the, we'll ask in a minute, just the, the new awareness of racial inequity um, in our society, but also obviously COVID-19. Um, so now, you know, we're still in the midst of COVID-19. Obviously, you know, we're recording from all of our own locations, which we, we typically don't do. Um, but if and when we get to a point where we're beyond COVID-19, what do you think are some long-term impacts on the, the world of college admissions? What's COVID-19 going to teach us? Yeah, and I do hope that there is, there is another side to this. I'm optimistic. We will get out of this, um, hopefully sooner rather than later. But there's a couple of things that I think will be long-lasting and that I think are opportunities in this process. One is you've probably followed the news that there is this real proliferation of colleges and universities all over the country going test optional. Uh, most students will not have the opportunity this fall or even this, this summer to take the traditional SAT and ACT exams that colleges and universities in this country have held pretty much sacred to the college admissions process. Um, and so many, many schools have joined the test optional movement and I predict many more will, um, just to make sure that students understand that they don't have to put themselves at risk by going to a test center just to take an exam. Um, but what I think may happen, to be honest, what I hope will happen is that at the end of this sort of like one, two, three year trial that colleges and universities are using um, by going test optional, they will realize that the students they admitted are just as wonderful as the ones they admitted when they required the exam. Um, so one of my hopes is that we actually, you know, remain test optional. And, and coupled with that is that we actually take this moment as an opportunity to simplify the process. Um, if you think about it, there, there's been a lot of additions over the decades of things that students need to do in order to apply to college. Um, not just on the admission side, but also the financial aid side. If you have to fill out a FAFSA form, the free application for federal student aid, you know, that's over 100 questions. And so we don't make getting into college um, an easy process to navigate. And so my greatest hope is that at the end of this entire process, colleges and universities come together to think about ways that we can make it simpler for students, which will increase access in this country. I have a question about that. And this is, this is kind of coming from you know, time on the time on the board and stuff that we had always talked about over and over again. And I, I guess what 
what role can NACAC have? Because I know that's something that people really want to know. We always talked about why I'm stacking questions. I shouldn't do that, but I, but I just feel like I need to, to say, like, we always talked about what do, what do we have the authority to do as an organization? What should we do as an organization? What's, so with, with that said, what, what can NACAC's role be? NACAC has a huge role to play, so I appreciate the question, Chris. Um, you know, NACAC is an advocacy organization. It is an organization that provides education and training, um, but it's also an organization, and one of the things I think we do the best is convening of people and ideas. Um, and so for me, the way I think about this is that NACAC should be the organization that's leading the conversation, that's bringing the right players to the table who are going to be making these decisions. And then also really turning that around and advocating for school counselors, um, admissions officers, all of the people that are doing this work, advocating not just on behalf of them um, in our government systems, but also through our partnerships and work with other foundations, organizations. And so I, I do think NACAC has a huge role to play right now in leading that conversation. But the first thing we need to do is really take a pulse on what is it that our members need. One thing that, you know, we're, all of this that we're talking about here really has a lot to do with the fact that everything is changing at such a rapid pace that we almost don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And so sure, the role sure. that NACAC will play, I think, also is going to evolve over time to meet the needs of the members where they are. Okay. How do you stay nimble? Because that's another topic we always had as a large organization and the board meets and you got to figure stuff out and you all have to agree. How do you, how, how do you stay nimble then? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is like college admissions right now, who's rethinking everything they do. I'm really encouraging the staff and the board at NACAC, um, and everyone is really open to it, to really think about how might we do our work differently. But go connecting this to your question about nimbleness is what do we no longer do? If we are going to make space for new, innovative, right. exciting things that are going to serve school counselors, independent counselors, community-based organizations, admissions officers differently, we can hold on to the past of some of the things that we used to do at NACAC. And so I think this is an incredible moment for reinvention. And it's interesting, Chris, you use the word nimbleness because I think the staff is tired of hearing me use that word. <laughs> I bet they I've, are. <laughs> I've only been here three weeks, but all I say is flexibility and nimbleness. That is our new normal. Well, I think sometimes with trying to be nimble and trying to get it right uh, is sometimes in a counterbalance. And, and you know, that's, I guess that can be difficult. And, and I'm, sure, I'm sure that's something you all work on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, I know you've been there, like you said. Let's see. Did you start this the 15th of I did, July? Yeah, this is my third week. I'm starting my third week. 16 days. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. So don't ask me the tough questions. <laughs> I know. Yeah, well, I'm sitting here thinking, well, I was going to say something about, you know, how you do, how do you do that? Uh, but you, you you did. You talked about get, putting the pulse on, on what members need. And that's, uh, if one thing, if I learned one thing, you know, sometimes, I don't know, maybe I'm too thin-skinned about stuff, but sometimes a member needs uh, made, made me feel like, uh, man, I'm getting criticized. They're not doing a good job. But there's one thing we know for sure about NACAC members. They will speak up and they will tell you what they need. And, the they, 
And they already have, Chris. They already okay, have. They? Um, yeah, and I welcome it. And actually, yeah. most, most of our members that are listening right now know that I'm going to be going on a listening tour. We're actually working to organize that right now. Um, right. And the last stop on my listening tour is actually going to be sort of a, a reinvention of the membership meeting in the fall that would normally happen at the conference. But oh, this wow. year I decided, well, instead of doing that, why don't we make the last stop on my listening tour, the membership meeting, which will actually happen before the conference, um, which obviously is virtual this year. But you know, folks will have plenty of opportunity to give us feedback because I do think that as the profession is changing, NACAC needs to change its course and focus. But that really can't just come from a board or the affiliate president's council. It really has to be sort of a, a collection of voices and for all of us to be thinking about how we do this together. So I'm hoping really to gather a lot from the listening tour. And this the timing is really perfect because we also have an ad hoc committee paper. Last year, um, the president, President Jane Fonash, um, really put together a committee, which ironically I chaired, um, unbeknownst to me that I was going to end up in the seat, but put together a committee to think about the future of leadership in college admissions. And we expanded that question to include what does NACAC look like in the year 2030? Um, and the board just approved that paper. Um, and so within the next month to six weeks, we will be releasing that to our members. Great. So there's a lot of really exciting new direction um, coming up that I think members will be will be really excited about. Joel, I apologize. I jumped on a bunch of follow-ups. I know you have more things you were really no, no, wanting no, no. to talk that's, about and ask. No, that's okay. I'm just sitting here thinking, like, some of the stuff that he's talking about, I, like, I already know, but because I signed that non-disclosure statement, <laughs> I'm just here like, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know that. It's just kind Angel, of funny. I, I will, I will tell public. you that, like, through, through, throughout the whole process, I'm like, hey, Joel, man, how's it going? And and I'm you know I'm kind of tongue in cheek. I'm not actually trying to get information out of him, but man, yes, you, even if he wouldn't, <laughs> he he wouldn't have shared a thing, nothing. <laughs> nah. It must have been a hard secret to keep, Joel. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there were people who really wanted to know how it was going, and you know, we didn't get much past fine. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was about it. But um, awesome. so so here's here's another topic that probably could take multiple. Uh, episodes to talk about, but you know, I mentioned we were, as a society, we're becoming aware of all the racial inequity um, and and demanding social justice um, in our country. How how does this movement carry over into the world of college admissions? Um, how do we how do we make the system more accessible and equitable um, for students? Wow, you're right, Joe. We could do like 20 episodes on yeah, this. We could. Right, we right, yeah, right. Just scratch the surface. So I may speak quickly and and briefly. You know, I, I'm I'm thinking about this in mo so many different ways. Um, one, and and I sent a letter to the membership on my first day is that I really think that we need to start working on these issues from the inside out. So I've made a commitment to. Um, doing anti-racist training and DEI training and, and also looking at pedagogy with the NACAC staff, the board, the affiliate president's council, as well as the special interest groups, because I see those four groups are very key to the leadership of the association so that if we are all trained and we are all really getting the professional development that we need, we can sort of trickle that down into, for example, the affiliates, um, so on and so forth. 
But I also think on a, on a broader scale, this is absolutely going to impact the college admissions process. I think it is making every college or university stop and think about what are some of the ways that we are potentially unintentionally participating in systemic racism? How is our own process um, really almost discouraging, um, you know, particular types of students from enrolling at our institutions? And what I actually find really exciting is I think this generation of young people are actually really going to be the ones who are going to lead the change. You know, if you think about this generation of um, high school students, the, the students that are about to graduate this year who are going to have an unprecedented college admissions process, I think they're going to be asking colleges very different kinds of questions um, than, than students from a year ago because they lived through this movement and now they're probably also wondering how are colleges and universities tackling these issues? They're probably wondering, you know, how active are some of the students on the particular campuses that they are considering? So I think everything from the way that we sort of structure this process to the questions we ask in the application to the way we engage the students is going to change in the next year. I've talked to a lot of my colleagues in higher education and they are, you know, they are really, uh, I call it building the plane while you fly it. They are literally reinventing this system um, day by day, but I do think you're going to see a big change. Okay, and, and can I ask one follow-up to that? Um, what do you see as the impact on HBCUs? In terms of admissions or in general? Just in general with, with all that we're, we're experiencing right now as a country. Yeah, you know, my, my hope and, and dream would be that HBCUs, one, uh, get more attention at the federal and national level so that they are funded at the, at the levels that they deserve to be funded. Sure. Um, and I also would hope that more students would consider HBCUs. Um, you know, I worked at a high school many years ago, and I will say, and, and the high school was predominantly Black and Latinx students, and I had a little bit of a hard time uh, sometimes getting, getting students to consider HBCUs. And, you know, I have many friends that graduated from HBCUs and literally describe it as one of the most transformative experiences of their life. And so right. I'm really hoping that the positive side of this is that, you know, more, more of our young people will consider HBCUs, but also that we find ways to partner with government and um, funding sources to make sure that those organizations are funded well. This is a little bit uh, different direction, but back to the original. I got maybe a follow up to the original question, not a follow up to the to the to Joel's follow up. But and I'm I I know I know oversimplifying this, but I'm wondering and and I'll preface it by saying, you know, you may not feel comfortable answering this, <laughs> or you might feel very comfortable answering this, but because um, it comes from my own opinion. But do you feel that? Here's the question. Finally. That, that colleges being beholden to rankings and and uh, standardized testing um, play, play a role with equity and access that, that could be detrimental? Oh, absolutely. I feel very comfortable answering this question. Um, oh, good. You know, I, I've been very, as you know, I've been very vocal about, um, you know, te the test optional movement, but also how I believe that rankings is probably one of the most detrimental things that's happened to higher education. Okay. And I, and I say that not just as a sort of higher ed philosopher, but as a, as a former practitioner, someone who, 
you know, worked on college campuses for 20 plus years and saw the pressures that colleges were under, despite the best intentions of boards and presidents and VPs of enrollment, there is an extraordinary amount of pressure um, to play the rankings game. And, and part of it is because you want to make sure that your institution is visible. You want to make sure that your institution is competitive um, and financially viable. And so all of these things are tied together, including the fact that average test scores go into the US News and World Report's ranking formula. So you can't really talk about access and equity without really talking about you know, how colleges and universities set their priorities and one thing that I've always thought about is if you change the incentives, so for example, if you change the way colleges and universities are rewarded, you might see a different outcome in equity and access issues. If colleges and universities were ranked for how quickly or how many students they were able to move up the social mobility ladder, we might have a very different outcome in this country. But right now, the wealthiest institutions are rewarded in the ranking system. So I could definitely do five podcasts about that, but I will stop there. You know, if you go back to Get Schooled episode four, you'll get to you'll get to hear our take on it. But to your to your point, when when the when when donor participation counts for more points than social mobility, which is finally added at least a tiny bit to to uh, the US News and World Report, right? Tiny, <laughs> tiny. It's like two and a half percent maybe. Uh, you know, that's, I guess I'm just really glad to hear you say that personally, because I just, every college person I talk to hates rankings. Yet, on every college website, almost every college website, yeah. it's on the front page. It's on the front page. Like, I don't know if you talked about this in your episode, but I do a lot of presentations around this. And even though it's an old article, it's still my favorite article of all times about the rankings, which is Malcolm Gladwell's The Order of Things. If you just mm -hmm. Google Malcolm Gladwell and The Order of Things, it was in The New Yorker. You know, since he wrote that article, the formula has changed and the percentages have changed, but the concept is still the same, right. um, you know, about really how ridiculous it is that we have created an entire system and, and that, you know, not just in the United States, but abroad, people put so much um, strength on this formula and make decisions about where they go and make value judgments about whether or not a college or university is quote unquote good. Um, if you read that article, it will change your mind immediately. And if you're a high school counselor listening to this podcast, I would share that with parents and students. Um, I've done yes. a lot and it really changes their minds. So first, read Malcolm Gladwell. Second, listen to Get Schooled episode four and it, everything is solved at that Don, point. You asked me to solve all, everything. In you, well, that's true. What, <laughs> you know, just, I know this is this is another side note, but I'm really curious quickly is, is what is the pressure like as an administrator? You've moved from that role at this point, but what does that, what does that look like in your job? Or, or just in the field? How's that feel? Yeah, I, you know, to, to be honest, I think the job of a chief enrollment officer today is harder than it's ever been before. It's an extraordinary amount of pressure. It can be a highly contentious position. Um, and, you know, it's, it's difficult because most of the people that moved into those roles or most of the people that started in the profession really took on those roles because they loved working with students, they wanted to create access. 
But when you become the chief enrollment officer, you wear many, many hats. And so you have to think about not just the, the access piece and doing what's right for students, but doing what's right for your institution and managing what I call mission and money, right? You have to bring forth the mission by bringing in a class. But if you don't bring in the right amount of money, um, there are some very, very difficult decisions that are going to be made at the institution. So most of my colleagues don't sleep during the month of April while they're waiting for deposits to come in because there are so many things um, that really rely on the net revenue that a chief enrollment officer brings in. And so it is an extraordinary amount of pressure. Yeah, I can't even imagine. All right, Joel, here I go again. Let me, give it, let me hand it back to you. Okay. On a different note, so, and this one, yet again, another, another major topic. So, but this is one that Chris and I talk about a lot. So, this past year, the, the maximum Pell Grant that could be awarded was $6,345. The average cost of a four-year education, multiple times that. So, how do we begin, not necessarily fix entirely, but how do we begin to fix a system where $1.5 trillion in student loan debt has been accrued uh, with a large uh, loan default rate? How do we get those costs down to a more manageable level? And the one that, that I really struggle with, how do we create a system where financial aid means more than just student loans? Yeah, you, you and I are passionate about the same thing. Um, you know, I, I know this sounds idealistic, but every audience that I talk to, I, I try to put this out there and, and I hope to be able to advocate on behalf of our members through NACAC, none of this is going to be solved by saying to colleges and universities, just admit more students and give them more financial aid. Um, we know that that is not a financially sustainable model right now. We have to fundamentally rethink how we fund higher education in this country. The way that we fund it and the 6,000 plus example of a Pell Grant that you just gave is the perfect example of how we clearly do not believe in this country that higher education is a public good. And it is a public good if Joel gets educated and does well and pays taxes and is an excellent citizen and contributes to society, that is good for the public. But the way that we fund higher education in this country really unintentionally states it's a private good, that if you go on and you, you, know, you pay for your own education and you do well, then that's good for you. you know, in, I think it was, I can't remember the year, but when Ronald Reagan was the governor of California, there's a deep history here, this is where it all began, he got up in a state of the state address and said that, you know, the state of California was no longer going to subsidize, um, and I can't remember if it was creativity or critical thinking, and then what he did after that was that he started to take away the funding from the University of California, which at the time was free and really an example of an extraordinary public education. We have never come back from that moment because other state university systems began to take funding away. And so if you look right now at the data, um, you know, we, we are billions of dollars behind where we used to be. And it's really, really important that the only way we are going to begin to get out of this is just to restructure the entire system and fund it differently. You know, I get frustrated about the fact that so many of NACAC members who are on the college side are always the scapegoats for why we don't do more on college access. 
But what most people don't realize is the people that sit in those chairs don't have as much power as you think. You are working within a very strict financial aid budget and can only do so much. But we can change that system when we begin to bring in other key players, including local and federal government, and I would say the corporate world and foundations who could really be lending a hand to higher education. That's awesome. I don't know how we get that started. You've, you're on the right track, I think. I mean, it can't just be more money. I, I, I really appreciate saying, well, you know, you throw more money at the problem. That's that's that seems like an answer sometimes. Well, I tell you, the real answer. It, it makes me think um, a year or two ago. I can't remember how long it's been now, but Chris and I participated in NACAC Advocacy Day, and one of the meetings we had was with one of. Uh, Senator McConnell's uh, staffers, which we know Senator McConnell, since we're from Kentucky, has been mm. in office. His name's Max. 30 years. Yeah, we talked with Max. Um, and one of, the things, yeah. one of the things we talked about, though, is, at least in our opinion, you can be conservative and still be for funding education. You know? Absolutely. Um, it's not about throwing, like Chris said, throwing more money at it. It can also be throwing money at the correct things, you know. And so I wonder if that's an argument that that can be pushed, you know, that that it's not just, oh, let's spend more money, but maybe let's think about the money that we're spending. Can we can we take it from something that maybe isn't shouldn't be a priority or isn't a priority and move it um, toward education? You know, Joel, the other the other way that I try to to frame it for government and legislators is I don't believe that funding financial aid and higher education is a social justice issue. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, that many of our colleagues in government think of it as a social justice issue. Now, in some cases it is. But the reality of the matter is I see funding education in this country as protecting the future of this nation, that if we do not have an educated citizenry, if you look at all the data and all the um, you know, research and reports about the future of work, the majority of jobs are going to require an education and a higher education. And so therefore, how are we setting this country up to be successful and competitive? We already see that we are falling in you know, many of, of the OCD, OECD, um, I always get that wrong, the rankings. And so I worry about the fact that if we do not have a fundamental restructure in the way we finance education, we really are gonna fall behind. So for me, it's not an issue of Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative or social justice. It really is an issue of the future success of this nation. Right. I completely agree. If you, it'd be, I can look at it strictly economical, which is for our country, we need, need an educated citizenry who can support themselves, if at all possible, and, well, and contribute. And, and I could go, I could go all history teacher at this point. And I'll, I'll refrain from doing that. <laughs> Thank you. Was, no, that, I've had enough of that over the. That was years. my job in a past life. So, Me okay. too. Um, <laughs> So, Chris, you better ask the next one because I'll get on a soapbox. If I, oh, yeah, we can't get Joel him. on this again. Uh, uh, we, we always like – we always like – we demand – we demand that we talk about counselor ratios in high schools. 
And, you know, what advice do you have? We, we probably have a lot of high school people who listen. Uh, what advice do you have to, to convince those in positions of power and authority that, that school counselors are vital to the college-going culture? Yeah, you know, in, in, my, in my dream fantasy land, I always wish that I could take uh, state legislators and effect, elected officials and just have them spend a day in a guidance office or a school yeah. counselor office. Amen. Um, yeah. In Arizona, where the high school counselor ratio is usually about 900 plus to one, uh, the school counselor to student ratio. And I think immediately they might change their vote on funding for um, for school counselors. But, you know, I see all of these issues as interconnected. We were just talking about funding right. for higher education. But if we don't fund the pipeline, um, you know, I, I, I think it's critical. And we all know that because the admissions process in the United States is pretty complicated, unless you have school counselors community-based organizations who are out there really sitting down with students um, and helping them understand that process. It's going to be really difficult um, to get students through. And the other piece is that, you know, those of us who work in this profession always talk about the fact that you in order to be successful in college, you have to find the right fit, right? And so, you know, a big school isn't for everyone, a small school isn't for everyone. You know, there's so many different options and, and you need trained professionals who are going to help students navigate that process so that they can be successful. So for me, it really is about, again, continuing that kind of advocacy at, not just at the at the federal level, but at the state level, so that you know our the folks that are making the decisions around the funding understand how critical this is to the success of the pipeline. I, 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 for our listeners, and I wish I could remember the name of the podcast, Angel. Maybe you can you can help me out. But you did a podcast a couple of months ago where you talked about the impact that a school counselor played on your yes. life and on your educational journey. And, and I would just, if, if you can find that podcast, if you're out there listening and you can find that podcast, you know, I like ours too, but that was a really good interview that you did and, and a really good story. And I wonder if the people that make these decisions at the state and local level, if they heard your story and stories like it, I would hope that maybe their opinion would change to where they would be more supportive of school yeah. counselors. You know. I agree. It's called How I Got Into College. It's actually a pretty cool podcast. It's just, you know, a, a collection of stories of people uh, talking about their journeys getting into college. Um, and obviously for me, it was really fun because that, that story really inspired the, the work that I do today. But you're right. I, I, I think also, you know, connected to this storytelling is really powerful, which is why what you two are doing right now is, is so important. Um, because I think people learn from those things. You know, um, some of your listeners will know that, um, you know, I, I gave some unprecedented access to, to a reporter who wrote a book and um, that one of the chapters in the book turned into um, the cover story in the New York Times Magazine called What College Admission Officers Really Want. And I will say, while I was nervous about giving that kind of unprecedented access, when that article came out in the New York Times, it really made a huge impact. I got calls from legislators. I got calls from elected officials around the country who said, how can we fix this? What can we do? What power does government have? And I was able to begin to have that conversation, to make connections between 
those elected officials and admissions officers and school counselors in their own communities. And so again, that power of storytelling, we shouldn't underestimate that. What excites you about your new platform? Wow. Um, there's a lot. Sorry, Joel. I went totally off script, man. You went like totally way, rogue. I went totally <laughs> rogue right there. That's all but, right. But I want this. I want. I want to get. We don't have tons of time left. I'd like to get personal. I like to just, you know, so people get to know you a little better too. But what? Again, I'll say it again. Apologize for my outburst. But what? What excites you about your new platform? Yeah, there's a lot of things that excite me. You know, it's interesting that you ask it in, in that way because many people have been checking in on me the last couple of weeks saying, you took this new job in the middle of a pandemic, are you okay? Um, and honestly, my answer has been, are you kidding me? I'm jazzed. Um, I, I, I'm looking for all of the opportunities, even, even through all the challenges. Um, I would say that what most excites me are the possibilities, one, you know, we, we started this podcast by talking about the way that the college admissions process is changing, the challenges that um, the professionals on the ground are facing, and the fact that I now get to advocate for, you know, 14,000 plus members at the national and global level, um, partner with, you know, governments and foundations um, and funders to really support their work, I think is is a way to scale up the issues that I care about really, really deeply. Um, I also think it's really exciting just to be able to join an organization at, at a time of such fundamental change and really get to bring people together to the table to say, let's reimagine um, not just the admissions process, but even the association. What does it look like? What, are, what does it look like a decade from now? To me, that's actually incredibly exciting. Um, and you know, I'm only three weeks in, but if you ask me what I've enjoyed most about the job is the diversity of my days. Um, you know, I'm speaking to you right now on a podcast. Um, a little while ago, I was speaking to uh, PBS. Um, in an hour, I will be talking about office furniture and what we do about it when <laughs> no one is here. Um, and, you know, in over the weekend, I'm going to be looking at some of the proposals that our government relations staff is putting together on how we advocate for public policy. So it's so diverse, the kinds of things that I get to to work on and advocate for. So it's been pretty exciting so far. Yeah, because you've got a combination of content and process. Right. You know, because you're, you're, you know, you're the CEO of an organization. Right. So, so that's part of it. Right. But then yeah. we got this huge piece of content which is, I don't know, something simple, like the whole college admissions world and landscape. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's a big one. It's a big one. But again, it's it's the, I get to talk about the 30,000 foot sort of view, but also get to, to really um, get into some of the nitty gritty issues of just running an organization and, and being, being a landlord in a building and all those kinds of things that come with running a complex organization. Right. And, and well, keeping the board of directors at 30,000 feet. Good luck with that. <laughs> I don't know. I, Why don't you both tell me how to do that? <laughs> I don't know. I was on it three years. I have no idea how to keep it. You know, what's crazy though. And, and I, I think I can say this without violating anything, but it just was, it, it was so interesting going through this search process. You know, at, at one point we're talking about who do we need to, to run an organization? And, and that kind of thing. And then it became, who do we need to run an organization during a pandemic? Yes. Like when that hit, it was like, oh, wow, this, this just got big. 
like you know and and obviously things have even gone you know bigger bigger things since then but it was just really like wow you know just sort of a, a mind shift there for a minute of there's a lot of things happening you know back to our original question we thought january 1 we had a lot of stuff going on um and then three months later whoo you know so you know, it's kudos funny. to you for taking it on. I mean, honestly, <laughs> yeah, you know, no, I'm excited, but it's funny you should mention that because I've been, I've been following a lot of, co- I follow a lot of college presidents on on Twitter, and I've been following a lot of new college presidents who took the job on July 1st, and I kept thinking maybe we should start a club, like you know, <laughs> presidents and CEOs who took the job in the middle of a pandemic, um, because we might learn some things from each other. I, I, I think there will be some really interesting stories to tell a year or two from now. This is a huge leadership moment as well. I think it tests every inch of your leadership capability because you have to not just lead, but rethink the way you lead. Um, You know, an example I'll I'll give is that had I landed at NACAC um, during a normal time, I would have been doing staff development and team building and, you know, all those kinds of things. And, And that's difficult to do because we're not here together. How does that how does that take shape online and still have the same impact and result? Um, I'm working through all those issues right now. I wanted to know because, you know, we have to get a little bit lighthearted with things as the work is really, really serious and nobody can be serious all the time. Like, what do you, what do you do for fun? Joel probably knows because of interviews, but I, I have no idea what, like what, you know, what's, what are your, what are your leisure activities? Yeah. Well, over the years, I have become a, a little outdoorsy. So I like going hiking and, and running. Um, but I have now moved to Washington, D.C., where it is like 10,000 degrees uh, in the summer. Um, so I'm adjusting to the weather here. Um, and if I do go out running and things, it's very, very early in the morning. Um, but I'm a big old nerd. So uh, I like to read. Um, right now I'm spending my readings. You may think this isn't fun, but I, I think it's a blast. Um, I'm spending my weekends <laughs> reading about associations and how to lead associations and running good nonprofits. Um, So for me, that kind of learning is exciting. Um, But for right now, you know, my, the way that I'm spending my, my very short and brief free time is really just trying to do some self-care. So, so trying to work out and doing a little meditation so that I can be fully present. Um, And the other thing that that I would share just because it's fun is I was never really a a big TV person, Um, but I will say there's nothing like a good Netflix binge these days because post-Trump election and pandemic, I just want to watch silly things. Like I don't want to watch serious stuff on television. So that's my other sort of guilty pleasure. Well, you know, it's almost Shark Week, so... You know, there's 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 a whole week. It's one of <laughs> I, I'm the only I'm the only person in America that hates Shark Week. Oh, you're, you're no, I I can't stand it. No, uh, I, I'll watch Discovery 51 weeks of the year, but Shark Week, well, not at all. Is this is our final episode. In the ocean? Say is again. It, is it because you spend a lot of time in the ocean? Like, why do you hate Shark Week? I I, I don't know. I just find. A week worth of shark shows? I mean, come on. Like, how much can we say about sharks? Yeah. yeah. I, just, I don't know. I just don't find well, women out of let it. Let me tell you. Well, no, no we don't stop, have time for that. Stop, stop. <laughs> All right. So, so maybe let's add. I, this is one I want to ask before. I know your time's precious, but before you get going. So we both have daughters that are entering their senior years. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we have, we have kids uh, that listen to our show as well. 
Um, obviously, their junior years were disrupted. You know, we finished on non-traditional instruction. Um, their senior years, you know, uh, well, Chris is retired now, but I'm, you know, my school is still figuring out how we're going to open and how many days and are we going to open and all those questions. So, so obviously their senior year is not starting quote unquote normally. Um, what advice would you give our daughters or just kids in general uh, that are going into their senior year and are going through an unprecedented college admissions experience? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I would say, first and foremost, remember that this too shall pass. Uh, one of my favorite Maya Angelou quotes, because the reality of the matter is, you know, we are in this moment and, and it seems never ending, but but there will be another side to this. And, and I think students need to sometimes think about that and focus on it because it might inspire them to sort of get through this moment. But I would also say that, you know, you things have changed and school is different. And the way we are engaging with each other, the way we're learning is really different. And you shouldn't put the pressure on yourself, especially if you are a high school senior, to try to recreate everything, including in your college application that you would have normally done if the world had not gone into lockdown under a pandemic. Um, and the other thing I would say is that, you know, please know that you are a stronger generation of young people because of this. I mean, you know, the fact that you are in the midst of a pandemic and also living through such a difficult time of racial injustice in our country is actually making you stronger and is probably shaping so much of your life right now around maybe what you want to do, how you're going to approach your studies. And so, don't necessarily see all of these things as a negative, but that right now you are training some muscles that you don't even know you're going to be able to use and call upon in the years ahead. So I think, you know, this class is going to be really special. Um, and so try to really focus on on the positive because there is a lot of positive um, amidst the darkness. Sure. So, Chris, I think that's a good place uh, for us to, to stop. Uh, Angel. You are welcome on our podcast anytime. Uh, if you'll send us your shirt size, we will send you a Get Schooled t-shirt. Yes. Um, I, no. I, know, I know you will value it, which, you know, it'll be your greatest gift. But in all seriousness, this, is, this has been incredible. Um, we could talk all day. Um, if you're ever interested in coming back, we would love to have you. Um, and we certainly do appreciate you being on the podcast today. Well, thank you. And it would it would be great to come back, especially maybe even in a year after we've got to it and analyze what just happened this past year and how have things changed. But, you know, I thank you. And also thank you for what you're doing, because, again, I believe in the power of storytelling and you are providing that platform. All right. Well, we're making it a date for 2021 then. So uh, with that, we will take a quick break and we will be right back with more Get School. Welcome back to Get Schooled by Reeves and Ford. So in the in the break, uh, he's a busy man, so we cut him loose, uh, let him go about his day. But Joel, man. He's an impressive think? guy, isn't he? 
Yeah, he is. He's an impressive yeah, he guy. Um, and, and I mean, I told you this before, but just listening to him talk, you know, you're just you're impressed with one his knowledge of of college admissions and the issues he surrounding gets it. it. He, he gets get, it. He, he gets it. He just but, gets it all around. He gets it. But but he's so conversational. That's the that's the cool part. Is like yeah, for a self-professed nerd, he doesn't. You know, he talks. He's really easy to talk to. I can oh, talk and, to that guy all day long. And, and I'm thinking for somebody like me who has the attention span of a housefly, like I could sit and just listen to him for hours talk about this stuff. You know, and and to hear him, you know, promote things and support things that we've talked about. You know, promoting more access and more equity in college admissions and coming up with just ways to better fund college, you know, besides student loans. And, and I, I know you're happy about his, his position on college rankings. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, you know, but even thinking about, again, I'm always big on content versus process, you know, I mean, all the content is awesome, but, but in the process sense, just his positivity and, and just outlook is is inspiring and i and i know that's what you all were looking for when you were looking for a ceo mm -hmm. but it's definitely definitely got somebody who's just impassioned and loves this stuff and and will will look at these challenges not as challenges but more like opportunities right well and again like i said before and i i, I think i could say this without being sued or anything but at the beginning of the process you know you have one set of priorities and and you see the world and 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 the way things are through one lens and then as the process went on and as life happened and you know as the pandemic happened you know things things became even more important and and your your the lens you looked through was much different but yet the no, I like how you started it I like how you started it because you you talked about okay this is what we thought was going to be important. Mm -hmm. And it was like terribly important. Yes. DOJ. Uh, come on, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden that was COVID COVID's like, you know, here, hold my beer. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, we, we went from varsity blues to how do we educate our kids? And, and I how know do we, fundamental, pro, fundamental things. Yeah. Uh, equity and, and, and access and, and even having school and how to have that. How do kids learn? How can they learn? What? How are colleges going to survive? They don't know which end is up right now. I, I mm -hmm. know that's a fact. So perspective, whoo, man, really but, changed. Uh, you know, he checked every box, um, and and hopefully our listeners gathered that listening to him on this episode. But um, I, you know, I have supreme confidence in his ability to lead our organization and to really have a major impact on college admissions for years to come. Um, and that, that's really, to me, that's really neat that, that, and, and kind of like you, I used the word inspiring, but to see and to be living in this moment where college admissions may be changing fundamentally and as scary as that is also there's a, there's excitement with that. You know, he's the right, he's the right person for the job. Yeah. It's awesome. I'm excited. Yeah. So, uh, well, let's let's take a quick break. Come back with uh, with our word of wisdom. 
and we'll wrap this episode up. I, I hope people enjoy it. I hope it's been a good one. But yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, with him on here again, as we always say, the best part of our episode was our guest. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's take a break, and we'll be back in a second. Welcome back to Get Schooled by Reason Ford. Chris, what's this week's word of wisdom? This episode's word of wisdom is going to come directly from our esteemed guest, Angel Perez. Uh, as a visionary, forward-thinking leader, he signs his emails onward. I've never seen that before in tens of thousands of emails over the years. But man, after all that's going on in our world, the lack of trust, the conflict, the difficult decisions schools and individuals have to make, the pandemic, what else can you do? Onward. The word speaks to our commitment. We will do the work. The word speaks to our character. We move forward daily. The word speaks to our resolve. We will not stop. So that is how you face each day. Onward. Indeed. And remember... You can always listen to Get Schooled on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at, at GetSchooled3 and on the internet at AskMrReeves.com slash GetSchooled. Next episode, we what have been we in communication. Well, here you go. We've been in communication with Penguin Random House Books. We will have a couple of authors who are big in college admissions. Uh, with them, we'll talk about their book and talk about what it's like when shaping a college or uh, freshman class. They're, um, are they admitting individuals one by one, or are some colleges looking at their freshman class as a, a single unit? We're really curious, and we'll find out next time. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Yeah, buddy, who hired you? Who hired you? He's the one that hired me. So we actually worked together for two years. Wow. Uh, Yeah. So now now my office is his former office. No, no. You're just Uh, using my office. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) Um, 